Well, good morning, Blackman Baptist. It was a rainy old night last night. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we are in our uh, second week digging into the chapters of Isaiah. I uh, was talking to Kevin last night a little bit about this message and about, the, uh, about where we are. And uh, we, we told you a couple weeks ago that one of the challenges we had in trying to prepare this, this series was deciding exactly which chapters would be included and which chapters would not be included for now. This is, so we're, we're in the second week, and we've already run across our first little tinge of regret for the ones that we've skipped over. Um, chapter 2 is a rich chapter, and actually, I'm going to try to hit it on the, on the end of this message today a little bit. But we're in chapter 5 today. Uh, last week, we looked at, at Isaiah chapter 1. It was the opening statement of a great prosecution. Now, the prosecutor, in this case, has all the evidence. We talked about that last week. Who's the prosecutor? It's, it's God Himself. There's no reasonable doubt. The accused is the nation of Israel, and she's guilty. So we're jumping ahead today to chapter 5. Last week, one of, the, one of the images we saw was God as the perfect father, but yet with rebellious children. And this week, we'll get another image. We'll see God as a frustrated landowner. And we're going to look at, at the Lord's unfruitful vineyard this morning. So instead of God calling to order the court of creation in chapter 5, like, like last week, in chapter 5, Isaiah sings a song. It's, almost, it's a poem, and it's a song of disappointment, of passion invested for nothing, and of a dream that refuses to come true. So let's pray, and then I'll read our focal passage. Father, we come to you this morning, and we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant Isaiah, who recorded these things for the benefit of your people in the past and for our benefit today. Father, we pray that you speak to us through these words, that you impress this on our hearts, that you change us. And draw us closer to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, I'm going to read from chapter 5, the first seven verses. I'm not going to read the whole chapter today, but we'll hit several of the verses as we go. Hear the word of the Lord. I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now residents of Jerusalem, men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I am about to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge. And it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but heard cries of despair. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it, by way of uh, signaling the outline, let me just kind of hit the four points that I'm hoping to cover this morning. And yeah, I said four. I know that's a little much. The first three from chapter 5 and the last from chapter 2. 
that God has given His people every opportunity and advantage to be fruitful for Him. That's our first point. God's given His people every advantage and every opportunity to be fruitful for Him. In the middle of the chapter, we're going to see that specific sins yield specific judgments. And this is a heavy part. And finally, that when those judgments come, God may use His and His people's enemies as instruments of His judgment. God may use His and His people's enemies as instruments of His judgment. Our fourth point is that even in all this, all this judgment and condemnation, God still has and expects us to respond to Him. And He expects us to come to Him. God God expects us to respond and come to Him. So, every morning I drive to work and I I check my Waze app, and Waze tells me the way I should go. Because uh, I have a 35-mile commute. I go to downtown Nashville every day. And very often I'll take 24, but very often 24 is really bad. And it says, you should go west, go out to Franklin, and then hook up north from there. But when I do that, I'll take the back roads. And the back roads from my house to Franklin take me by a place called Arrington Vineyards. Have you, have you seen this place? You can see it from 840. And it's a very pretty place. And it, it, it reminded me of this because, because of the care that God took in, in setting up His vineyard, these owners of this property out here have taken a lot of care to make their property beautiful. And of course, they want a good crop. They want to sell wine. That's what they do. And when you look at their property, when you look at the vines, when you look at the buildings, you can tell the care that they put into it. They've invested a lot of effort and a lot of money to make it beautiful and make it, make it a good and fruitful place. And, and that's, that's what's going on. That is the the real-life picture of what God is doing. God has, has given us this analogy. I set up a vineyard, and I expected it to bear good fruit, but it didn't, and I'm disappointed. So we've read, we've read Isaiah's song of the vineyard. God, the great vine dresser, has set up his vineyard for success. He's done everything to allow and encourage it to grow a sweet and high-quality crop. It says, what does the Scripture say? He, he cleared the stones. He selected fertile soil. For it. He cleared stones. He planted it with the finest vines. He chose what he wanted to do. He did not. So he's done everything to, to allow and encourage it to grow. It's not a question of his competence or his care. Because he's done everything right. He did not fail in his preparation. Israel, the vineyard, was set up to succeed. But Israel isn't a mindless vine. Israel has a mind of its own. And they were disobedient. So the vine of Israel, is they're, they're, they failed to yield. And God is disappointed. They failed to obey and be faithful. And He is disappointed in their response. What, what is His response then to them? We jump right into it. Where He had protected it, He, built a, he had a hedge around it to protect it. And He had a tower in it to watch over it and guard it. He's going to remove that protection. The hedge is gone. The tower he's going to let fall. Where he had watered it and sustained it, now he's going to actually command the rain not to fall on it. He's going to take that away. The rain that blesses this ground and makes it good and rich, he's taking it away. Where he had invested in it and cared for it and cultivated and worked this ground, he said, I will abandon it. It's going to be a wasteland. I'm going to abandon it. Now what specifically, what was his missed expectation here? And the scripture tells us directly. 
What he expected from Israel and Judah, he expected justice, but he saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but he heard cries of despair. So our principle here, God gives us the opportunity to be fruitful for him. He gives us the opportunity and he gives us the, the advantage. And so he has reason when we fail to be disappointed. He asks only for our trust and devotion, just like he asked Israel. Believe me, walk with me, obey me. That's all he asked for. So when we fail to, he, he has reason to be disappointed. Like the vineyard he placed on a fertile hill, protected with a hedge and a tower, thoughtfully prepared. He, he's, he's placed us well also. And God clearly says that the vineyard is Israel, the vines are the people of Judah. If we see God's response to their faithlessness, we would be fools to not examine ourselves. And should we compare, how should we compare Israel? You know, to, to take application from this, I'd say for one thing, we can, we can compare Israel to our own country. And our country is not Israel, but it's worth making a comparison and examining ourselves. What, what rich provision has he made for us here in this land? And what protection has he given us over 243 years? When I sat and did the math, it was hard for me to believe it's been that long. Because uh, 1976 seems like a, just a few days ago to me. <laughs> but 243 years, and, and he has protected us and sustained us. And what is our fruit? He expected righteousness. He expected justice. What is our fruit? So this is, a, this is not an easy thing to talk about, but for much of what America has done, there is righteousness and justice, but it's not pure. And we have some real injustice and we have some real blood on our hands too as a nation in our record. And we still embrace some even today. And to, to ignore either is foolishness. We can't be bold for justice in the world if we hate ourselves. We can't hate ourselves. But we can't be faithful to God's standard if we refuse to confront our own evil. We have to do both. We have to be bold. We have to recognize what's good, but we have to confront what's not good. And today is National Sanctity of Life Day. Somehow in America, this is controversial. There are those who believe that 60 million babies that we have killed since 1973 are a fair price to pay for what they call freedom. Freedom to choose. But what it really is is bondage to selfishness. It's not freedom at all. And these babies never get the chance to cry. They're dead before their, their lungs take in air. But God hears. We may not hear, but God hears. He judged Israel for cries of despair. So what is he hearing from America? So we move on in our lesson. Because the second, the second part of the chapter in chapter 5 is a series of woes. God says, woe to you for this and woe to you for that. A woe is just a, it's a warning. But it's a warning really without an opportunity for a fix. It's just, this is coming. And here's why. So, so he, he has a series of several woes and consequences. And I want to walk through those because our, our idea here is that specific sins yield specific consequences and judgments. The first one, he says, Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there's no more room and you're left alone in the land. 
And what he's talking about here is greed for money and property. Because he had given the nation of Israel the land. Right? The land itself is not a sin. It's not a problem. It was a good gift. But what was happening now is some greedy people in Israel were squeezing other people out and accumulating for themselves. And God is saying, woe to you. You want to you pile up and accumulate? This is a problem. You're pushing some people out and you're making yourselves wealthy. But what he says is the consequence. Many houses will be desolate. Many houses will be desolate. And he talks about how the yields of this land that people are, are hoarding is going to drop. And how little the yield will be. So you think you can make yourselves rich by gathering all this land. And God says, I still own the land. I'm going to lower the yield. You're not going to be rich. I'm going to take it away. The second woe. He said, woe to those who rise early in pursuit of beer. And he goes on. The idea being that these people are so focused on the party. They're so focused on entertainment, experience, even music. It talks about the instruments. Um, that they, that they want to participate in, that, that they don't even perceive the Lord's actions and they do not see the work of His hands. So again, is, is the Lord condemning celebration? Is He condemning music and instruments? No, certainly not. But what He is is, con- is condemning self-indulgence and an obsession on these things to the exclusion of recognizing God's good work. What's the consequence? He says, Therefore my people will go into exile. Because these people are so focused on ignoring God and pursuing their own pleasure and their own fun, the consequences, therefore, my people will go into Israel, is exile. Isaiah here is directly prophesying the exile, which has not happened yet, historically. So this is prophecy that at the time of the writing is not fulfilled. But it will be soon. Another consequence that Isaiah mentioned, he says, Sheol enlarges its throat. This is this is poet. This is poetry. This is metaphor. But what's Sheol? It's the grave. It's death, right? When Sheol enlarges its throat, what's he saying? A lot of people are going to die. A lot of people are going to die. He means that very literally because the Babylonians are coming, the Assyrians are coming. It's going to be bad for Israel and Judah. And so Isaiah is saying, "Look out! The grave is going to swallow a bunch of you." <coughs> He, he goes on to say, Woe to those who say, Let him hurry up and do his work quickly so that I can see it. This is, this is the sound of a mocker, right? Psalm 1 tells us what God thinks of mockers. Blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the seat of sinners or sit, stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. These are mockers who say, Oh God, you got so much good things going on. Let me see some of it. When are you going to actually do it so I can watch you? That's the tone here. What do you think God's response to that is? Do you realize that the very creation that you sit in is my work? That the very air you're breathing is my work? That the very fact that you're not dead right now is my work? But don't mock me and say, when will we see your work? There are these last four woes kind of all pile up to one, uh, one consequence. He talks about redefining truth. <clears throat> Woe to those who call good evil, evil good and good evil. Boy, if we don't see that in our society today, do you see it? A complete redefinition of what is true and what is false, of what is good and what is evil. Now we've, we've come to the point where even on the news yesterday, I was watching that somebody on the news questioned 
whether one of our public servants should even get the benefit of, of security protection because she holds Christian convictions. It's nuts. Because they have concluded that to say godly things is evil. And, and this goes on. I mean, we, we could probably all pile out, and probably every single one of us could name examples of this that we see in our society. It's wicked. But God says no. Call good good and call evil evil. Let's be clear about this. We have arrogant and false wisdom. The scripture says, Woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves clever. This is arrogance. Our, our wisdom needs to come from God. It needs to come from His Word. If we think that we can invent our own wisdom, if we think that we can prove our way out of God's sovereignty through some kind of scientific method, then we don't understand what scientific method even means. And brothers and sisters, I am, I am the furthest thing from against science. Science properly conducted is, is a search for truth, right? But we have scientific people who, who call themselves scientific people today who aren't interested in truth. They're interested in their own dogma. And, and this is what this is talking about. False wisdom who consider themselves wise and judge themselves clever. Drunken folly. We have woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine. This, you, you can probably just picture a frat house, right? This is clear. This is just, this is open party city. That's what's going on here. And again, just like the other, just like the other thing we talked about with self-indulgence and, and entertainment. If, if you're so focused on being a champion at drinking wine, are you going to be focused on, on the good works of God? Probably not, right? In fact, no, you're not. Again, it's a, it's a matter of your focus. Then finally, he closes this set of woes with a corrupt justice system. He says, woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe or deprive the innocent of justice. And we, again, we're, we're susceptible to this because we, have, we, we can become so callous when we see injustice to just expect injustice to continue. But we, but we can't. We have to hate it every time. And we have to resist it. Um, and we, we're used to seeing people with money get away with stuff and people without money get locked up for stuff. And it can't be. It's wrong. And we should, we should push, up, push against it. So the consequence of these, this last thing that Isaiah tells us is that destruction will come. And he says, as a tongue of fire consumes straw and as dry grass shrivels in the flame, so their roots will become like something rotten and their blossoms will blow away like dust. Because of these things, because they've forgotten the true God, because they're seeking after these things, destruction is coming. That's what he's saying. And we want to remember that the Lord brings specific consequences for specific sins. That's what this passage is telling us. So again, what consequence will America pay for our injustices and for our sins? And I was looking at this. Um, I've been there three times with my girls, each in turn. I love when I go to Washington, D.C. to just sit in the Lincoln Memorial and read the speeches. And I've done that with each of them. You girls probably remember. Maybe it felt a little corny, I don't know. But, but we, would, we would go in the Lincoln Memorial, and there's two speeches. There's the Gettysburg and the second inaugural. Actually, second inaugural in Gettysburg, I think. And you go in there, and they're, they're, the, words are this, the letters are this tall on the wall. And the whole speech is, is carved on the wall so you can read it. Now, Abraham Lincoln is not a prophet. He is not a writer of Scripture, but his words are powerful. And they were informed by a deep understanding of Scripture, too. 
And, and I'm not going to make any claims about his, um, his theology. But what he did say in his speech, he openly talked about God's judgment. In the middle of the Civil War, in his second inaugural address, he didn't claim to know God's mind, but he said, if God wills that this mighty scourge of war continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. He's quoting Psalm 19. He's quoting uh, David there. But the concept is what? He recognizes that this sovereign God has his own purposes in the, in the affairs of men, that he can use things like war to extract justice. And, he is, and he's questioning and he's, he's wondering, you know, there's, there's all these centuries of injustice that, we have, that we've done. Are we paying for it now, drop for drop? But it's a question. He doesn't have an answer. It's a question. And I, my question is, when we kill 60 million children, what's, what is the answer for that? And how are those distributed, by the way? Disproportionately, more babies of poor women, black women, and Hispanic women. Black babies are killed at a rate about three times whites. And Hispanic women at a rate about two times whites. And the, make no mistake here, Planned Parenthood is the organization that endorses and promotes this abortion in our country. They started as a project to purify our population on a race and class basis. And they continue their evil tradition today. They believe it, and that's what they want to do. And our government pays for it. This, this lie of Satan must be contrasted with the truth of God. Because the lie of Satan is that a woman can guarantee her freedom by taking the life of her child. That a woman can guarantee her own freedom by taking the life of her child. But the truth of God is, He bought our freedom by giving the life of His child. Right? How can you be more anti-Christian than abortion? It is the opposite of the gospel. Taking a life in a vain attempt to buy your freedom rather than accepting a life that was given freely. Mm. So what is a reasonable judgment? If God gives specific judgments for specific sins, what is a reasonable judgment for 60 million babies? So the last, uh, the last point from chapter 5. Chapter 5 doesn't offer a lot of hope, to be candid. Is that, the, is that when these judgments and consequences come, sometimes they come by our own enemies, even the enemies of God's people. So the, the Scripture tells us, what, what will God do? He's going to remove Israel's protection, like He said about the vineyard, and He's going to unleash the enemies. Listen, from, cha from chapter 5, verse 26, it says, He raises a signal flag for the distant nations, and whistles for them from the ends of the earth. Look how quickly and swiftly they come. None of them grows weary or stumbles. No one slumbers or sleeps. No belt is loose and no sandal strap is broken. Their arrows are sharpened and their bows are strung. Their horses' hooves are like flint. Their chariot wheels are like a whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion's. They roar like young lions. They growl and seize their prey and carry it off. And no one can rescue it. This, this uh, description here 
is talking about the enemies of Israel. And what is God's response to them right now? He's whistling for them. Come on. Come on. I'm opening up the gate. I'm knocking down the hedge. Enemies of Israel, have your way. Do what you want to do. These, these wicked nations who are pagans and, and they're idol worshipers, and they are violent people, and God is calling them to come do what they want to do with Israel. That, to just think how shocking that is. It's It's remarkable. God's chosen people, and he's, he's opening up the gates and giving them to his enemies. But note, too, what is God's relationship to them? He calls them like a dog. He whistles to them. He's not going and asking them nicely. He's, he's calling them like a dog. They are subject to him. He has power over them. Okay. So we've enjoyed this uh, chapter 5 message about about consequences and sin and judgment and we skipped over chapter two and and i i want to just jump back there for a minute because because the truth is we as believers we as christians we're not hopeless right we we must learn from what the scripture tells us but we don't have to walk away from hope so we know that when god speaks to us through his word he expects a response and very often in scripture we see a therefore which helps us to see that because of the things we've been told, now we ought to go and respond in a certain way. Chapter 5 does not have any expectation of a response. There's no therefore. There's just, this is what you have done, and this is what's going to happen to you as a result. So where does that leave us today? Well, in Romans 15, Paul teaches that everything we find in scriptures was written to teach us. What can we learn from Isaiah 5? That God has given his people every opportunity and every advantage to be fruitful. That specific sin yields specific judgments. And that God may use his and his people's enemies as instruments of that judgment. We often say that the gospel rightly preached should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Today's message has mostly been about afflicting. But but let's look at chapter 2 for a minute. So... Chapter 2 is a vision of the mountain of the Lord. And I'm smiling now because it's beautiful. And it's good. And it's what we long for. It describes the state, this future state of ultimate peace and ultimate justice at the end of all things. When, When God rules over man and man submits, willingly submits to his perfect justice. In that condition, it describes that all the nations come to the mountain and they beat their swords into plowshares. Why? Well, with no injustice, there's no need for war. When God rules over, there's only peace. There's no need for weapons. So there's only fruitful and productive labor. So when God was wanting a productive vineyard, he'll get it. He'll get it in the end. And the word says that all nations stream to it, this mountain. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us about his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And this calls for a response. It's actually two responses that he's calling for. And first, we should come. Because he says, come. But second, we should say come to everyone else. So first we follow. First we, we walk toward this mountain. We walk to, the, to our Savior. But second, we say to others, come. Come with me. Let's go to this Savior. Let's go to the mountain. 
And this is what we do as believers, as a church. It's not arrogant to have found answers. It's, it's only good. They're not our answers. They're God's answers. We share them. Right? So follow. And then ask others to follow too. Come and say come. That's our message today.